This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Welcome to the World War II Radio Podcast. Today we have the CBS World News Today broadcast of Sunday, November 29th, 1942. This weekly update was presented every Sunday and expands upon the normal daily news we typically hear. This episode includes updates on the war from Cairo, Honolulu, Washington, and New York, as well as some less than successful efforts to get updates from other foreign bureaus. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And be sure to visit our website at brickpicklemedia.com slash podcasts, where you can find links to past episodes, as well as the books featured in our podcasts. So thanks for listening. Enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. World News Today. Brought to you by Continental Radio and Television Corporation, makers of Admiral Radio, America's smart set. By shortwave broadcast, direct from world capitals, as well as the leading news centers of our own country, CBS correspondents are waiting to bring you a complete report from the world's political and battlefronts. But first, here's John Daly with a summary of headline news as received in New York. It is clear now that the Russians look for more than the lifting of the siege of Stalingrad. They're out to smash the German armies. Today's noon communique from Moscow announced that the surprise offensive of the Red Army on the central front west of Moscow widened breaches gouged out of the German lines and continued its advance against stubborn resistance. How deep the penetration is was not stated in the noon communique, but a special communique issued earlier announced a breakthrough which isolated Veliko Luki, 280 miles west of Moscow and only 90 miles from the old Latvian frontier. The statistics of the damage done to the Germans on the central front indicate that the successes before Stalingrad are being repeated. According to the Russians, 300 populated places have been recaptured on a breakthrough 20 miles wide. 10,000 Germans have been killed and five Nazi divisions routed. Perhaps even more important, two vital German supply lines in the area have been cut. One is the east-west rail line running from Moscow to Riga, the other a branch railroad running southwest from Velikaluki to the town of Nevel. The fighting west of Moscow demonstrates beyond all doubt that the Red Army is strong enough to sustain a winter offensive. The Nazis long ago built a powerful line of fortifications west of Moscow, fortifications that were constructed by Fritz Stott, who built the Siegfried Line to protect the French-German border. And it's these fortifications that the Russians have cracked. Meanwhile, at Stalingrad, the Russians continue to advance northwest and southwest of the city. Although the noon communique gave little detail, it did say that in the past 24 hours, another 2,300 Nazis were killed on two sectors northwest of Stalingrad, and 64 Axis planes were shot down. Later in the program, Larry Lasseur, CBS correspondent, who has just come home from Moscow, will give his first uncensored report of our Russian allies. On the other fronts in the West, an Allied communique has announced the occupation of Jadeda, a rail center 12 miles northwest of Tunis City in Tunisia, and says that operations are proceeding satisfactorily elsewhere. And now for a first-hand report of the Tunisian fighting, Admiral Radio takes you to CBS Algiers, Charles Collingwood reporting. It will be 1832. 
I'll give you that check which is coming up now. The CBS in North Africa, time checking for CBS in New York. 18.32 coming up in 10 seconds. In five seconds, four, three, two, one, what? 55 now. That was 18.32 GMT. I'll be going ahead in a minute and a half. Oh, thanks. Come on, New York. You have just heard Charles Collingwood, the CBS correspondent in Algiers, checking through with our offices here in New York, and you heard his report saying that we would hear from him in a minute and a half by our clocks. Until that time, we can give you some more news of the activity in North Africa. Although the reports from Libya say that there is no land activity and little air activity, the slim details that we do have of the fighting indicate that the Allied forces in Libya and in Tunisia are working together, and that the air forces are going ahead of the land forces acting as artillery, softening up the German spots and hammering at their supply lines. It's very much the type of action which preceded the British Eighth Army's great offensive at El Alamein, which crushed, as you know, Ronald's Africa Corps. An earlier report from the CBS correspondent in Cairo said that the leaders of the two Allied forces in Africa, the forces in Libya and Tunisia, have conferred recently at General Eisenhower's headquarters, indicating that the two forces are working very closely together. And now we will make another attempt to get the report of Charles Collingwood direct from Tunisia. For that first-hand report of the Tunisian fighting, fighting that is going on at land perhaps heavier than we know, CBS Algiers is called in. Charles Collingwood reports. signal from Algiers seems to have failed. Either that or technical difficulties are offering too much interference. We'll see if we can pick it up later on. Meanwhile, we take you to CBS London. Bob Trout reporting. This is CBS in New York calling CBS in London. Go ahead, Bob Trout. We regret that the circuits with Europe seem to have failed for the moment. We will come back and try and pick them up again. Meanwhile, the news here at home is news of new activity in the Lucians, where the Navy says the Japanese have reoccupied Atu. But the war news is shared here at home with a terrible tragedy in Boston. Fire swept through the Coconut Grove, a nightclub in the Hub City last night, and up to the present it's known that 431 people lost their lives. It was the third most disastrous single fire in modern history. And now for a report from our own capital, we take you to CBS Washington, Lee White reporting. It's been evident for some time past that we're fast approaching a manpower crisis and that very little has been done to avoid it. Congress has been doing a lot of talking, but adequate legislation has yet to be drafted. Meanwhile, it appears that President Roosevelt has decided to solve at least part of the problem by reorganizing his cabinet. Rumors of the past few days have been confirmed, at least to the extent that the president has offered the Department of Labor to Harold Ickes, 
now Secretary of Interior. If Mr. Ickes accepts, it's understood that he would assume control of both manpower and selective service, as well as routine labor administration. Friends say that Mr. Ickes is reluctant to give up his beloved Department of Interior, especially for a job so full of dynamite as that of labor czar. But he will obey the orders of his commander-in-chief if the president sees fit to insist. If Mr. Ickes does accept, he will relieve Madam Secretary Perkins, who will probably be appointed Director of Social Security. Paul McNutt, now manpower czar, but with none of the authority accompanying czardom, would replace Mr. Ickes at the Department of Interior, it's understood. One reason for so much undercover negotiation seems to be that the Army is opposed to unified civilian control over both labor supply and the draft. General Somerville is said to believe that the Army should have control of both. But Mr. Ickes is said to have made it clear that he wouldn't consider taking over manpower control without similar control over the draft boards. He believes, and so it appears as the president, that labor supply and selective service are both integral parts of the same problem, that neither can be solved independently. This solution of manpower control is said to please both government officials and congressional leaders who've advocated centralized control for some time, but apparently it doesn't please the War Department. Advocates of the cabinet shift point out one further advantage to the plan of making Mr. Ickes czar of both labor supply and the draft. As Secretary of Labor, they say, Mr. Ickes would become a member of James F. Burns' Economic Stabilization Board. And thus, Mr. Burns and Mr. Ickes would be vested with sufficient authority to coordinate manpower control with control over wages and prices. As John Daly has told you, the Japanese have succeeded in reoccupying Atu Island in the Aleutians. The Navy communique gives no details, but merely reports that flying fortresses on Thanksgiving Day bombed a small cargo vessel off the island. Three hits were scored and the ship was sinking when last seen. Army fighters which accompanied the flying fortresses strafed enemy anti-aircraft installations on the island. On Guadalcanal, the Navy says, there's nothing to report except minor patrol activity incident to the consolidation of our positions. Yesterday, Solomon's time, United States aircraft carried out a night attack on enemy shipping in the Munda Bay area of the New Georgia Islands. Recently, minor enemy activity had been observed in this group, and Japanese destroyers had shelled several villages. A simultaneous War Department communique announces that Allied forces have occupied the rail center of Jededa, only 12 miles outside Tunis, and operations are said to be proceeding satisfactorily around Matur, 25 miles south of Bizet. Yesterday, the War Department says, we bombed the airdrome and docks at Bizerta, causing considerable damage. Ten airplanes were shot Ten enemy planes were shot down in dogfights over the city at a loss of only two planes of our own. The War Department adds that the enemy twice bombed Bonn yesterday. Three out of a flight of eight German bombers were destroyed, and later one out of eight Italian bombers were shot down. I now return you to CBS New York and John Daly. Here in London, I mean rather here in New York, we find that our circuits with Europe have been reinstated and we will attempt to call our correspondents in Europe in for their reports. For the first of the reports from overseas, Admiral Radio calls in CBS Cairo, Winston Burdett reporting. This is Mr. Morrison speaking from Cairo. This is a beautiful season in Egypt, the best time of the year. The weather is like mid-spring at home. In every backyard, rusty chrysanthemums and poinsettias are in bloom. The army has gone into winter uniform and has acquired that comfortable feeling of superiority that comes with a new suit. 
We have just had a great victory in battle, and they're beginning to hand the medals around. The brass hats get to be commanders of the bar, and the aviators put up the distinguished flying cross. And now and then, somebody back in England or New Zealand gets a package with a Victoria cross in it to remind them of an unlucky relative. Did you ever see a fellow win a medal? I saw Lance Corporal Baker win a medal. I know Baker better than I know a lot of friends back home, but I have to stop and think to remember that his name is Bert. I call him Cock, and he calls me Uncle. In peacetime, he used to work in a laundry, and now he drives a truck and he cooks. And in his spare time, he practices American. He talks like a movie gangster. He drove his cock into a mess of German mortars one day near Merzimatru, and people were getting hurt all around. And the mortars were blasting him personally at Baker. And Baker was using horrible language at the mortars while he moved his truck into position to shield the removal of a badly wounded Scots captain who was very bloody and who probably is dead by now. And Baker got blood on his soldier suit. And he was gentle as a girl with the wounded officer. And all the time, the language he was using was not fit for a dying man to hear. But the Scot wasn't listening. And then Baker climbed into his truck again and moved over to another truck that had been disabled. He got out and hitched up a tow lane while the mortar bombs kept making loud noises. And he towed the truck off up the road, swearing, swearing like a baker. So they announced today that Baker has the military medal. I left him in Benghazi three days ago. I kind of hesitate to go back. It must embarrass Baker to be an official hero. This is Chester Morrison returning you to CBS New York. and John Daly. Now here is Warren Sweeney with a word from Admiral Radio. Have you ever stopped to think how important your radio has become? Not only to you, but to your country as well? This is a total war. We are all in it, every man, woman, and child. What we do on the home front has a direct bearing upon the success of our men on the fighting fronts. Radio not only brings us many pleasant hours of entertainment, it tells us how to fight the battle here at home, the importance of getting in the scrap, the whys and wherefores of rationing, the urgent need for blood plasma by the Red Cross. Do you want to know how you can help win the war? Listen to your radio, then act. Yes, that radio of yours is mighty important to Uncle Sam these days. That's why Admiral dealers throughout the country are standing by to lend a helping hand when something goes wrong with it. Admiral dealers have the experience and facilities to put that radio of yours, regardless of make, back in perfect operating condition, promptly and economically. See your Admiral dealer. He's nearby, waiting and wanting to help. Now here once again... For Admiral Radio, is John Daly. While the past week did not produce any sensational developments in the Pacific, there was plenty of news of our continued offensive against the Japanese. For that news, Admiral Radio turns next to CBS Honolulu, Webley Edwards reporting. With the first anniversary of Pearl Harbor at hand, America can take new pride in her Navy as a result of the Pacific Fleet's recent major victory in the Solomons. A first-class disaster was visited upon the Japanese fleet there between November 12 and 16. Recognition has rightfully been given to the battleships, cruisers, and destroyers, and their personnel who blew the Japs out of the water in the two night actions off Savo Island. But equal credit is due to the tough crew of Navy, Marine, and Army flyers who've been fighting out of Guadalcanal for nearly four months. 
It was the ceaseless efforts of these lads who've made it possible for our forces to retake Guadalcanal with its important airfield and to hold it against everything that Japs could throw at them. The success of their stubborn defense of our vital toehold on the road to Tokyo made our great sea victory possible. Now, the spearhead of this crew has been Lieutenant Harold Swede Larson of Birmingham, Alabama, and his pilots of Torpedo Squadron 8. He has just returned from the Solomons, where he and his men took part in every action within range of Guadalcanal since last August. He's right here beside me. Lieutenant Larson, I thought uh, Torpedo Squadron 8 was wiped out in the attack on enemy carriers in the Battle of Midway. No, not all of us. Lieutenant Commander John Waldron, who raised us all from props and who we all admire greatly, went in with 15 planes in that attack. The only survivor was George Gay. We also had six planes operating from Midway Islands, led by Lieutenant Langdon Feverling. They made a torpedo attack in the same action and were all lost except one plane. Our detachment, held in reserve, was later reinforced and embarked in a carrier and sent to the Solomons. We supported the attack and occupation of the Guadalcanal Tulagi area August 7th and 8th and were in the carrier action against the Japs August 24th. Shortly thereafter, we were based ashore on Guadalcanal. How many attacks have you been in, Lieutenant? Our squadron has been in 40. I've been in 27. Many of these have been bombing attacks as well as torpedo attacks. Uh, how many ships have you hit, Lieutenant Larson? Our squadron has hit 14. The last one we hit was on November the 15th. Well, that was after the two night ship battles around Savo Island then. Yes, the remnants of the Jap forces were then scattered up and down the groove and trying to escape to the north. Our job was to go out and pick off the stragglers. We hit a Congo-class battleship and a transport. Some days at Guadalcanal, we didn't fly. Other days, we made as many as eight attacks. I'd like to introduce my executive officer, Lieutenant Bruce Harwood, a very capable pilot and admirably suited to the tough flying conditions we faced at Guadalcanal. Where's your hometown, Lieutenant Harwood? Claremont, California. My wife's in Coronado. Now, what about these flying conditions Lieutenant Larson mentioned? They're not so bad. Just the usual tropical weather, lots of rain and no visibility. Plenty of mud, and about half the flies and mosquitoes in the whole world. We had a lot of fun out of it. It was a pleasure to be there and to operate daily so close to the enemy. Incidentally, our gang operated out of Guadalcanal longer than any other outfit. It was almost continuous bombing and shelling, our pilots held up in great shape. Flight crews also did a grand job. Isn't that right, Swede? They certainly rate a lot of credit. So do the engineering and ordnance crews. They're the boys you don't hear much about, but we couldn't have operated without their excellent work. Right now, a few of us are having a short breathing spell and a chance to say hello to a few people. And then we're going back to take another crack at the Japs. And that's the word from a man who has just been in the thick of the Pacific fighting, cracking the Japs. Lieutenant Harold Swede Larson. With him is Executive Officer in Navy Torpedo Squadron 8, Lieutenant Bruce Harwood. All kinds of good luck to you. This is Wobbly Edwards at Pearl Harbor. And now here he is with his own story of the astounding Russian, Larry Lasseur. The great Russian offensive, which Premier Stalin originally planned to drive the Germans out of Russia this year, is now taking place but it's taking place later in the year than Stalin planned. Last May 1st, you remember, he ordered the Red Army to push the invaders out of Russia in 1942. 
At that time, he was thinking in terms of a United Nations second front in Europe this year. But a lot of unexpected things happened last summer while I was in Russia. The Russians had become overconfident. They didn't expect the great German surge across the Don. And Great Britain did not expect the early German advance in Egypt last July. America did not count on the German submarine and air force strength to sink so many ships. But although Russia used up some of her best divisions in the defense of Stalingrad, the Soviet Union was not compelled to expend her mighty reserve armies. They remained fresh and intact. Now she's throwing them into the battle. Plenty of American equipment is going into the present offensive, too. We piled a lot of stuff into Russia this year, and the Russians were hoarding it until this moment, when they judged that the Germans in the South were exhausted. But we must not forget that the great German armies holding the line in Central and North Russia have seen little action this summer. They are still immensely strong. The first stage of the Russian offensive around Stalingrad is completed. The next phase will take longer. The German army trapped on the open plain between the Don and the Volga must be exterminated. This could take a short time if the Germans were inclined to surrender. But Germans rarely surrender as long as they have food, ammunition, and shelter. But that's exactly what they will not have on the bleak steppes. Here there are no trees for firewood, and the iron-cold winds from Siberia pile the Russian snow ten feet deep. If the Germans could supply this army by transport plane, they could, conceivably, pull through. But Germany's great weakness lies in our overworked air force. The Germans will undoubtedly try to break their way through this Russian ring. It's the new Soviet offensive on the Central Front which is the most remarkable. Here the Russians are scoring appreciable gains against a fresh German army which did not see much action this past summer. You see, there are really two worlds in Russia, Russia in summer and Russia in winter. The only people who understand winter are the Russians. Centuries of mere survival in the terrible six-month frost have better race whose vitality is their greatest attribute. They don't need so much equipment to run a winter offensive. When the snows really get deep, tanks won't work well. This may prevent the Russians from making really decisive gains this winter. But they'll kill a lot of Germans. And now a few words about the Russian civilians, and they deserve it. When I left Moscow, they were getting one square meal a day, if they worked. If they prefer to stay home as dependents, they are deprived of their entire fat ration. Matter of fact, they might have a hard time cooking at home, because to save fuel, the gas is turned off in Moscow for days at a time. Last winter, entire blocks of apartment houses had their electric lights turned off for solid weeks. The workers sat in the dark from the time they came home until the time they went to work in the early morning. But still they carry on, alone. Soviet internal propaganda has fostered their pride and nationalism until it burns with a white glow. Years of deprivation have given these people their strength. If Soviet Russia had devoted its great industries to making creature comforts, the Russian people would have been happier, but they also would have been conquered. That was Larry Lasseur, CBS correspondent just returned from Moscow. Now here's a message from Admiral Radio. Picture American dive bombers flying over an enemy fleet. Suddenly, the radio on every plane barks a command. Bombing three. Target contacted. Form echelon. One by one, the planes peel off, dive, release bombs. And another Jap cruiser heads for Davy Jones' locker. 
Today, Admiral Assembly Lines are building the radio equipment which makes such coordinated actions possible. Equipment that gets the message through regardless of altitude, below zero temperatures, the crushing speeds of dive bombings. Every owner of an Admiral radio has proof in his own home of Admiral dependability. Dependability that made Admiral in peacetime the world's largest manufacturer of radio phonograph combinations with automatic record changes. When victory is ours, look again to Admiral for the finest in radio entertainment. To Admiral for America's smart set. World News Today is brought to you each Sunday at this hour by Continental Radio and Television Corporation, makers of Admiral Radio, America's smart set. Be sure to listen next Sunday when Admiral will again give you World News Today by shortwave, direct from the leading news centers of the world. In spite of what you may have heard or read, this country is critically short of rubber. That, not a shortage of gasoline, is the reason for gasoline rationing. So when rationing starts Tuesday... Obey the spirit as well as the letter of the law. To do so is to help your country. Always share your car and go twice as far. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. The WBBM Air Theater, Wrigley Building, Chicago.